This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 1st, 2017, and this is Michael Howby welcoming you to episode 427 of Defender Radio. Before we do anything else today, I have two things that I need to talk about. Pollen being an evil conspiracy by Big Pharma to hurt my feelings and wallet, and our amazing new t-shirts. For the former, I mostly need people to feel sorry for me, send me well wishes, and tell my wife she should probably stop rolling her eye so much when I whine. For the latter, I need to first tell you how we saved the lives of beavers at the fur bears. Beavers are really awesome. Most of you already know that. They do a ton of free conservation work for us as eco-engineers. They clean water, create and maintain wetlands, and even help in times of drought by creating more groundwater. On top of that, they mate for life, live in multi-generational family units, and are generally adorable. But their tree felling and damming activities can create problems for landowners, including municipalities, farmers, and even urban homeowners. Unfortunately, the traditional means of managing this situation is to kill the beavers, typically with cruel traps. Now, however, there are multiple methods to keep beavers in place, prevent infrastructure damage, and generally have our ecological cake and eat it too. Using concepts like tree wrapping, flow devices, and other fencing systems are the humane long-term solutions that the fur bears promote and actively train municipalities and volunteers on how to make. We've been all over British Columbia doing this. We toured northern Ontario installing devices and educating municipalities. And now we're even being invited to Alberta for a second time. But all of this costs money. That's why we have our Bonfire t-shirt sale on. You can buy a celebrating Castor Canadensis tee in unisex or women's sizing with multiple color options and help us save the lives of beaver families across the country. I've got the link to the fundraiser in this week's Defender Radio blog at thefurbears.com, and you can also find it on all of my and the Fur Bears social media channels. I hope you'll join me in celebrating the beaver and helping us save their lives. Now let's get into this week's show. On January 10th, 2017, Donald Trump became the 45th President of the United States of America. While I do have my personal feelings about the man that I cannot in good conscience share on this family-friendly podcast, it cannot be said that he is a friend of the animals. Immediately upon his winning of the 2016 election, animal advocates began scrambling, and within the first few weeks of his presidency, their nightmares started coming true. Massive cuts to environmental and animal-related federal budgets, the reversal of many protection laws, and censoring of both science and advocacy within federal agencies. In this age of Trump, animal advocacy in the United States has taken on a new urgency, and how that will eventually impact wildlife and our environment is yet to be seen. But that will not halt the work of groups like the Animal Legal Defense Fund, or ALDF, whose campaigns focus on a variety of animal-related issues, including the worrisome case of Tony the Tiger, who lives in a roadside cage, fighting against cruel puppy mills, and the onslaught of so-called ag-gag laws. To discuss these campaigns and how this new unpredictable age of presidential politics will impact them, Defender Radio was joined by ALDF Senior Attorney Anthony Ellis-Susan. 
So look, we, we're going to talk about a few different things, I guess, today. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to make fun of politicians. And that makes everyone happy. <laughs> I think that the best spot to start, though, is with this case that you're working on with Tony the Tiger, uh, which I, th- okay. I actually thought was a typo when that got sent to me. Uh, right. uh, and I'm sure you haven't heard that joke at least a hundred <laughs> times by now. Uh, so why, why don't we start back? We're looking April, 2011, uh, is how far back this, this, this timeline goes involving Tony, the tiger. So let's start there. What, what was going on in April of 2011? So in, so in April of 2011, uh, Louisiana, the Louisiana legislature passed the big cat ban. Um, and one of our co- interveners in the case, Warren Trish Jr., was actually a a House representative at the time who sponsored the legislation. And he was concerned about the Tony case in particular and more generally about other reports he heard of, you know, of captive wild animals and tigers. So the Louisiana legislature passed this big cat ban, uh, which essentially made it illegal for private parties to possess big cats, including tigers. Uh, the Animal Legal Defense Fund then uh, filed litigation against the regulatory body that controlled uh, or that regulated the big cat ban, um, including as a co-party, uh, Warren Trish, who was the, the House representative who had sponsored the legislation. And they were successful. They, they obtained a judgment, um, ultimately uh, an injunction against the, the regulatory body from issuing a permit that would allow the tiger truck stop to keep Tony. Uh, that went up on appeal, and the appeal was affirmed. Uh, the trial court's judgment was affirmed. There was sort of a, a little bit of a procedural curveball in there that I won't, you know, I'm happy to get into if you want to. But ultimately, uh, the injunction was af- was affirmed by the appellate court. Um, Tiger Truck Stop petitioned the Supreme Court of Louisiana to review it, and it's a discretionary review, and is is pretty typical. The Louisiana Supreme Court didn't want to review it, so they let it stand. Uh, and that was the final judgment. And that's and, pretty significant on itself, though, to have it, it go this far, hit uh, uh, the ap- appellate, I can never say that word, appellate court, uh, which sides with uh, uh, ALDF. And then the Supreme Court say, nope, you know, we're, we're agreeing with that decision. We're not going to see it uh, in terms of an animal legal case. Exactly. It was a major victory. Uh, it was a hard fought litigation. I think tiger truck stop indicated they spent almost half a million dollars litigating the case. Um, so it it was, you know, a very, very tough litigation victory and a well-deserved litigation victory by the, you know, the attorneys at the animal legal defense fund who handled that case. That was, you know, well before my time at the animal legal defense fund, but they, they did a great job and, and won, won the case. And what tiger truck stop did, unfortunately, and this is sort of where we're at today and where I come in is it engaged in two sort of legal tactics to try to avoid that judgment. First, it, it lobbied the Louisiana legislature. Uh, Michael Samlin, who's the owner of Tiger Truck Stop, has, uh, is fairly well uh, connected uh, politically down in Louisiana. And so he went to some of his friends in the legislature, essentially, and got them to um, sponsor and ultimately enact a special law that was expressly designed to only benefit Tiger Truck Stop and allow it to continue to possess Tony, notwithstanding the general prohibition uh, against, you know, possession of, of tigers and, and big cats in Louisiana uh, that was adopted in the big cat ban. That is one of the issues in our, our case. Um, and then the second, sort of the second thing he did, he legislatively, he, he got the exemption. He also, after the judgment had been entered against him at the trial court level, and while the appeal was pending, 
um, in the First Circuit Court of Appeal in Louisiana, Tiger Truck Stop filed its own lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the big cap ban. And that litigation is, is ongoing. Um, and, and one of the things that the Animal Legal Defense Fund has done now is we filed an amended petition in that case where we're going to challenge both the tactics that Tiger Truck Stop implemented. Uh, we've affirmatively raised challenges as to the special law, the exemption that allows Tiger Truck Stop to keep Tony arguing it's a special law, which is a, a term of art under the Louisiana Constitution, which prohibits, you know, for good reason, prohibits the Louisiana legislature from passing a law that's designed to just benefit a private person um, for a lot of reasons, including that it's obviously, uh, it undermines confidence in, in the legal system when you have legislature acting for a very specific special interest. Um, and so we've argued that's unconstitutional. Uh, and, and then secondly, because we're, we were able to intervene, again, along with Mr. Uh, Trish, who is the original sponsor of the big cap ban, we're going to be in a position to defend the big cap ban against the constitutional challenges that Tiger Truck Stop has raised. Uh, and, and that's, you know, much broader than just Tony. That's, you know, keeping the big cat ban, uh, you know, in force as to any tigers, captive tigers, potentially captive tigers or big cats in Louisiana. So that would have, you know, much broader ramifications if the court were to strike down the big cat ban. Uh, and again, we're, we're confident that it's a constitutional law, and we're equally confident that the special exemption that was passed to benefit Tiger Truck Stop is an unconstitutional law. And more recently, you've also, um, I don't know if it's more recently, but recently, this month, uh, you've petitioned the USDA, the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, to uh, conduct an inspection of Tony. Uh, based on recent, uh, the, the news release is based on recent information raising concerns regarding the tiger's health. It is. There were some public comments um, from people who had visited Tiger Truck Stop and claimed to have seen Tony, you know, ex uh, you know, engaging in lethargic behavior, uh, diarrhea, things like that. Uh, based on those concerns, we sent our own private investigator to the Tiger Truck Stop to take video and photos of Tony. We sent those to our a world-class veterinarian expert who deals with uh, tigers all the time. She reviewed those photos and videos, and based on that, she had some concerns about uh, Tony's health, specifically two concerns. One, he has what's known as a kyphosis, which is really just an abnormal rounding of his TL spine, and that can be indicative of a, a large variety of conditions, um, you know, at a minimum some sort of arthritic condition, but it could be much more severe than that. And then secondly, Tony, it's it's clear, and, I, and I've looked at the videos, and even I, as a layperson, can identify this. He's he's really favoring his rear right foot. It's clear that he doesn't want to put weight on his rear right foot, uh, and he's to the extent that he engages in this sort of crossing over behavior, where he, you know, he steps across his body to try to keep all of his weight on his his left rear foot. Um, it affects his tail movement, which normally, you know, the, you know, tigers and other big cats, and even you know, house cats use their their tail to sort of help guide their weight. Uh, and you can see that his tail is trying to keep the weight off of his rear right foot. Uh, and it's affecting his posture, which could, you know, exacerbate the condition with his spine already. Uh, and then he's, you know, sort of hunching over more to try to keep the weight off the rear part of his body. Um, and so based on those concerns, uh, we sent a letter to the USDA, as you indicated, and asked them to, you know, to step up under the Animal Welfare Act and engage in inspection of Tiger truck stop to see if there are any violations of the Animal Welfare Act, and also to determine whether you know Tony needs to see an independent 
uh, veterinarian expert for independent care, which we think he he does need. Well, and based on my you know law and order legal expertise, uh, which in this case is actually from watching all the animal cop shows that my wife watches, which I agree <laughs> to watch in lieu of watching Glee reruns. Uh, um, if they see you know if your your typical sort of SPCA agent or officer sees an animal sort of exhibiting ongoing symptoms such as you have described. So the, the um, uh, diarrhea ongoing, the, the clear discomfort at the, the minimum of that right rear uh, paw and uh, some other issues that are being raised. They have the authority to go in and say, to go to a court and say, you know, these are what we're seeing. We want to, you know, have an inspection. We want to pull that animal out of that condition and have a look at that. Why doesn't that happen here? Is there is it separate law because it, uh, because he's an exotic animal? No, it, we're hopeful it will happen. I mean, we you know we've notified the USDA. We've asked them to send an inspector out. As far as we know, they haven't gone to the facility yet. We're trying to follow up and find out. Um, there's sort of a typically it's 45 days to 60 days after a complaint that the USDA will follow up on that. We've obviously you know notified them that there's you know exigent circumstances here, and we've done everything we can to persuade them to go out there as quickly as possible. So hopefully they will, you know, get out to Tony quickly. Uh, and like you said, then they, you know, seeing what, and, you know, we offer to send them the videos and photos as well. Um, but seeing what, what we've seen, you know, we're confident that they, they will step up and, and do their job and, and require Tony to go through an independent exam uh, to determine what exactly is causing his medical conditions, make sure he gets appropriate treatment um, and it's notable that, you know, the Tiger Truck Stops had problems in the past. Um, this is a a facility that has, you know, exploited tigers for 20 years just to promote its business. And it's been cited by the USDA previously for violations of the Animal Welfare Act, including a failure to provide, you know, basic veterinary care, clean drinking water, and for mishandling tigers uh, in violation of the Animal Welfare Act, among other issues. So there's a track record at Tiger Truck Stop of not providing adequate treatment and care for tigers. So hopefully that, you know, is something that will also, you know, trigger the USDA to act promptly here. The USDA is not having a good year. I, I, I find they, uh, they come up quite frequently in conversation amongst us animal folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Although I, I must admit, it's probably a pretty tough job to have for them, uh, particularly with the political pressure. And that's what really sticks out to me in this case uh, is the the action of the Louisiana legislature, and I guess it's specifically the governor, um, signing into law a bill to protect this specific animal in what are, I, I, I don't know how you can look at this and say, yep, A, that's a healthy tiger, B, that's a happy tiger, C, this is an appropriate way for a tiger to live. It is. It's very frustrating. And the legal system, it, it's just the nature of, of the beast. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've been with the Animal Legal Defense Fund for a couple months now, and I was in private practice prior to that representing, you know, corporate clients. And the same frustration occurs in that, in that arena as well. It's just, you know, the legal system sometimes moves slowly and it's, it's unfortunate. There's only so much as an advocate you can do to push things along. Uh, and we're certainly, you know, doing everything we can to, to speed it along and to get the court to, to, you know, get final resolution on these issues. And we feel like with this amended petition that we recently filed, you know, we're in a good spot and hopefully we will get, you know, resolution very, very soon and get Tony out of that truck stop and get him to a sanctuary where he can be, you know, happier and get better care. Absolutely. Um, 
One of the, the campaigns that's ongoing, and I don't know if you call it a case or a campaign at this point, is the ag-gag laws in the U.S. Uh, this is something that we kind of hear about, and as advocates, um, it feels kind of like the sun is to a vampire. We don't know a whole lot about it, but we don't like it. Um, it's uh, it, it almost feels like an ominous presence these days. Uh, could you explain what ag-gag laws are in sort of that broad sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is another example of a situation where a special interest group is able to lobby for laws that are clearly, in my view, unconstitutional. So the ag-gag laws are essentially, you know, animal agriculture, the agriculture industry using special lobbies to get state legislatures to pass laws that limit free speech and First Amendment rights of, of individuals. And they take they take a range of, of permutations, um, but essentially what they're they're geared at is trying to prevent people from learning the truth about what's going on in these different slaughterhouses and different facilities. So they, you know, might restrict what uh, people can do to get employment at these facilities, because as I'm sure you're aware, oftentimes advocacy groups have, you know, gotten jobs at different facilities in order to learn what's going on and then expose that to the public. Um, so these ag-gag laws are essentially an attempt to prevent that and keep, you know, keep the public from learning what goes on in these facilities. Um, and they can include all sorts of really um, draconian remedies and sanctions so that just the threat of the sanctions, even if the statute is unconstitutional, it essentially chills somebody from engaging in their free speech rights because they're concerned that, you know, these big lobbying groups who had the money to, to get the laws passed in the first place you know, also have the resources to hire really expensive attorneys and litigate really aggressively. And they can essentially, you know, destroy private parties and bankrupt them um, through the litigation process. And so this is one of the tools that the animal agriculture industry uses to try to to chill the, the free speech rights of people who are trying to expose the truth to the public. Um, it certainly feels uh, akin to the slap suits that we're all familiar with as well that are used sort of to direct directly at the individuals from the corporation as opposed to through the government, like an ag legislation. Yeah, exactly. It's like a anti-slap suit on steroids because you have not only the threat of the litigation, you have this statute that on its face might expose you to all sorts of draconian remedies on top of that. So it just increases the leverage available to these, you know, animal agriculture companies to shut people down and silence them. Well, and what what surprises me? Now, I understand, and, I, and this is, you know, a, a, a broad reach of my compassion and insights, uh, uh, but trying to understand where some of these agricultural companies come from. And this, this comes more from my experience speaking with farmers, landowners, and ranchers, is the, the fear of the extremism. Um, and I think that's... While I think it is sensationalized by the media and sometimes uh, legislature and lobbies, I think it is a reasonable concern um, because it has happened and because of the language used sometimes by activists or advocates. Um, you know, if, if you have a dairy farm or, or a pig farm or whatever, um, and, uh, and, and I'm going to preface this with the fact that I do eat a plant-based diet, um, but... You know, it, there is a, a back of your mind fear that these people might come after you and that your livelihood could be put at stake because of what you perceive as a political disagreement. Um, so is there a way to sort of have realistic protections for a business person who, albeit is in the business of exploiting animals, um, to be able to protect their interests 
without necessarily impeding on the rights of those who want to speak on behalf of the animals. Uh, I'm trying to say this in the Queen's English, but I can't. Uh, uh, I don't want to end with a preposition. I can feel my mother smacking the back of my head. Um, <laughs> the people who own the animals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's always a danger on both sides of, you know, painting things with too broad a brush because obviously there are, you know, whenever you're dealing with any sort of debate or uh, issue, there's, you know, going to be extremes on both sides of the debate and there's a range of of people involved. Um, so certainly those are legitimate concerns and points. The the egg-egg laws are clearly not a good example of that. They're only to protect sort of uh, the anim- what I would characterize as the bad actors in the animal agriculture industry, because for the for, for the good actors or the better actors, there are already tools in place to protect against any sort of extremism. I mean, in fact, uh, and this is going a little bit beyond my knowledge base, but uh, animal animal advocates are sort of a hated group in in the law. There's special laws in the U.S. that are specifically designed uh, to try to impede animal advocates already. Um, there's you know there's various Patriot Act type provisions. Um, and things like that. So there's already uh, sort of extra tools in the tool belt of animal agriculture, even beyond these egg-gag laws. Um, and, and just, you know, any any company has certain protections over, uh, you know, its private information and, and its confidential information. What they're trying to protect against in these egg-gag laws are, are things that aren't confidential, but they're abuses that are going on in certain Obviously not all, but but in certain of these facilities, there's abuses, and that's what they're concerned about. They're concerned about, you know, the exposés where where people are seen doing things that are just clearly wrong, uh, clearly criminal in nature, and just you know horrible, horrible abuses of animals. That's what they're trying to suppress with the ag gag laws. And I don't think there's anyone who would uh, actually try to defend that type of conduct. So for the for the good actors out there, I think they already have the protections against any sort of you know, legitimate concerns they have about extremism. But the ag-gag laws are just designed to protect the real bad actors. Well, and what I think is curious, too, I'm putting you on the spot now as a, an economist, because uh, clearly <laughs> you, you can speak to that, um, is it? I, I would think at a certain point it becomes less expensive and more profitable to have proper oversight within your own factories or warehouses or barns than it does to constantly be lobbying for ag-ag laws or, or paying for all this extra security and whatnot. Um, like, if you simply say, if you do this, you will be fired and someone else will come in to replace you. Um, like, wouldn't that kind of, like, solve the problem? You, you would certainly hope so. You would certainly hope, and I'm sure there is a range of, of companies within the animal agriculture industry, and that's the, the route they've gone down. They've, they've just put in... You know, when they've learned of abuses in their own facilities or have concerns that other facilities have had abuses and want to make sure it didn't happen to them, you know, hopefully that's the route they went down. And they just, like you said, just improved compliance and made sure there was proper supervision so that these types of things wouldn't wouldn't happen. And I agree with you. It seemed like in the long run that that would be the, the cheaper and better solution for, for everyone, including the industry itself. Now that we fixed that, um, and look, I'll just I'll send a copy of this down south, and uh, you guys can get it all sorted. Um, I I think what's interesting again, I I, was, I spent some time last night uh, reading over some of your cases, some of your campaigns, and what astounds me is even though you're you're based in legal defense, uh, you do everything by the law with with lawyers like yourself, uh, the 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 strength of political. Uh, 
uh, not attitude, but sort of motivation behind so much of this is so apparent to me. And we are in uncharted waters, I, I think it's safe to say, in terms of American politics right now. Have you seen, and this is a question I got uh, from a few folks on social media uh, in our audience, have you seen a change in attitude or a change in mentality in the last few months since Donald Trump became the president of the United States with his very uh, unpredictable style of, uh, uh, I don't want to say leadership because it's not leadership, but unpredictable style of politics? Well, certainly we've seen specific policy measures that have been implemented uh, under the new administration that are negative from an animal welfare perspective. So, you know, there's a, a few examples I can give you. One, there was the uh, the USDA historically had posted records of all their Animal Welfare Act inspection reports on the website, which is under the Freedom of Information Act in the U.S. One of the goals of that statute is transparency. And really, that should be the goal of all good government, uh, making sure the citizens are informed about what the government's doing. And that, that was one very good um you know, program that the USDA had where anyone could go onto this database and look up Animal Welfare Act inspection records and identify whether, you know, different facilities were in compliance or not in compliance with the Animal Welfare Act. Recently, that's all been blacked out. It's all been taken offline. Uh, and there's litigation, including a case filed by Animal Legal Defense Fund. Uh, and we've actually filed a, a motion for preliminary injunction that would require the USDA to repost that database and continue to update it. Uh, and I think that's going to be heard by the judge, uh, the middle of May. And so that's certainly one, you know, recent policy act that we've seen that is very detrimental to animal interest. Another one that's out there, um, I guess there's been some litigation about it, but the border wall, uh, people don't think of the border wall as an animal issue. They think of it as an immigration issue. And it, it certainly is, uh, it's, it's, it raises all sorts of issues, but it, it does raise animal issues. There's, you know, over 100 threatened or endangered species that live around the border wall area, including some that are extremely uh, endangered. In fact, there's a, a jaguar in the southwest United States that was thought to be extinct at one point. And now there's been a handful of sightings over the last decade or so of, of jaguars, you know, back in the southwest United States. And it, the scientists are pretty sure that they're, they're, they're roaming up across the border from Mexico because there's different sanctuaries and different areas and in Mexico where they can survive. So if you were to build the wall, you're effectively, you know, cutting off the jaguars from ever repopulating in the United States where they had historically lived. And it's going to, you know, impact their, their hunting and their breeding, you know, um, behaviors as well. And there's, you know, literally over a hundred other threatened and endangered species that have that similar problem who are routinely going across the border. And, and, you know, that's part of their habitat. And if you build this huge wall there, um, it's going to have major negative consequences for those animals and, and the environment more generally. It's It really is shocking. And I, as a Canadian, uh, you know, I, I obviously have a different perspective on this. I couldn't imagine something like a border wall going up or even being discussed without the environmental impact, um, you know, in the, the simple manner of uh, uh, an environmental impact report. Uh, being discussed and it, you know, uh, uh, as of today, and we're, we're speaking on, I don't know what day today is, Tuesday, uh, the 25th, uh, for our listeners, you know, there, there's talk about the government stalling out because, uh, uh, President Trump is trying to force, uh, early approval for funds to build this wall. Like it, it, I, 
it, it literally kind of gives me a headache and I see a bright white light. And tell me why I shouldn't go towards that light. <laughs> well, we're certainly very concerned about it as well. And, and you raise a very good point that typically, and this is true in the U.S. as well, uh, typically all federal projects have to go through uh, what's known as NEPA or the National Environment Policy Act, Environmental Policy Act. Uh, and there can either be an environmental assessment or an environmental impact statement, sort of depending on the, the nature of the project and what what agencies are involved. Now, the, the tricky part when it comes to the border wall is there were certain waiver powers that were passed and given to what's now the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security uh, during prior points in time when there were these, you know, sort of concerns about immigration issues. So there was a law passed in 1996. And then again, in 2005, there was something known as the Real ID Act, which was supposed to strengthen the southern border and strengthen, uh, you know, it was essentially a push to try to crack down on what was viewed as, you know, illegal immigration at the time. And under those those legislative efforts, there was authority given to the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security to essentially decide on his or her own, it's a, it's a him now, but uh, to, to waive essentially any federal law, including all the environmental laws, you know, NEPA, uh, Clean Water Act, any any other environmental laws that might be negatively inf- impacted by the uh, construction of a border wall, the, the Secretary of Homeland Security can just waive those uh, and avoid going through that that process to even determine how bad the environment would be impacted by by the border wall. And that's certainly something that the Animal Legal Defense Fund and many other groups are focused on with a laser focus, and certainly to the extent that you know any waivers are invoked, um, you know, to try to build that that border wall. That's something that we would you know strongly evaluate looking at litigation um, to raise you know various challenges, constitutional challenges, and various other challenges to to that type of waiver. Yeah, and that that wall has a, an assortment of issues behind it uh, on on every possible level, uh, you know, socioeconomic, uh, freedom of movement of persons, uh, all of the, the acts you described. Um, and it's though the, the, the rush for it is the, the feeling I'm getting in terms of sort of how some of this legislation is happening. Um, and particularly, um, the, the, uh, uh, executive orders, you know, uh, uh, president Trump was quite proud of how quickly he was signing those. Um, and at one point admitted he didn't actually know what was included in one of them. Um, like, yeah, as, a, again, as a Canadian, um, I, I genuinely worry. Um, and this is not just for animals, but for an assortment of things. Uh, again, today in my newspaper, uh, we're hearing about, uh, uh, you know, shots fired on the softwood lumber issue at West. And, uh, uh, your government wants to increase the tariff, which goes against, you know, NAFTA, which is all kinds of other issues. Um, and then there's the whole starting four different wars at the same time issue. Uh, kind of worries me a bit. Um, but then we even scale back down to like the National Park Service. That And this, this one, I, I am amazed by what happened in that, that sort of chain of events of this defunding met by resistance. Uh, but the censorship, I think, and I don't even know if it's censorship at this point. It's it's something of National uh, uh, Park Service, of uh, EPA. All of these records just sort of like disappearing off the internet. Um, well, I, what, I, I'm going to ask you personally, what was your reaction when some of this news showed up in front of you? 
from, you know, the records disappearing to the funding or deregulation of longstanding environmental programs uh, and so on. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly concerned, you know, from the Animal Legal Defense Fund's perspective, we're concerned whenever there's any regulatory or deregulatory efforts uh, that, that will impact the great progress that's been made in recent years to try to, you know, help uh, protect the environment and animals. And certainly those are some good examples. You know, the, the USDA blackout of the records, uh, just general defunding, deregulation, uh, those are concerns because, you know, frankly, there's there's already, even without defunding, there's already a lack of, of adequate funding. Uh, if you look at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the number of inspectors they have, they, they don't have enough. You know, it's, it's we were talking, you know, broad brushes earlier, but there's a lot of really good men and women at the USDA who really care deeply about animals and want to do their job, and they just don't have the resources to do that. And I'm sure that's true within every regulatory agency in the United States. And so what they, they really need is more money. They need more help. They need more resources. So whenever you're talking about, you know, defunding or deregulation, what's already a system that doesn't have enough uh, enough resources and, and, and ability, um, you know, to protect and carry out its its regulatory function, that's a significant concern for us. And certainly we're going to do everything we can within the legal system to sort of fight fight those efforts to roll back and, uh, and defund, uh, you know, regulatory efforts that are designed to try to protect the interest of animals. And does this change the type of advocacy you do, uh, both, you know, literally and figuratively? Um, uh, at the the ALDF and for your supporters, um, you know, again, it's it's some sweeping regulatory changes, and a very clear uh, uh, screw them attitude. I think that's just the most eloquent way to put it. Uh, coming from the top down, um, does it affect your day to day in how you are an advocate? Again, both as a, a a literal advocate as a lawyer and as someone who speaks for the animals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you from a from a personal standpoint, the reason why I work for the Animal Legal Defense Fund today is is because of sort of the political environment out there. That's what what caused me to change jobs uh, because I knew, you know, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, the animals are going to need all the help they could get from a a litigation perspective, and I'm I'm a litigator, so uh, there's certainly going to be a lot of work for us to do uh, to the extent that there's continued efforts to sort of defund and deregulate uh, the protections that are in place today. Uh, to protect animals. And then really, it's not just deregulation. There's a lot more that can be done proactively as well. You know, for example, there is, and this is, you know, sort of heartening to see, but there is a big cat public safety act uh, was recently introduced uh, in Congress in the United States, which is a, a a nationwide law that would do something akin to what the, the big cat ban was designed to do in Louisiana. And that was sponsored by many Republicans. Um, which is nice to see. So there is, you know, bipartisan support for for animal issues as well. Um, but certainly, there, you know, with with sort of the things you're describing as far as the, you know, sort of the political framework, there's going to be a lot on the legislative slide that has to be done. Um, it will certainly create dynamics within the regulatory agencies. I mean, I strongly suspect there's many, you know, career employees in these regulatory agencies that are none too happy about what's going on. Um, and, you know, from a litigator perspective, it would be really interesting to see what sort of internal memos are being written about the negative consequences of some of these political uh, decisions that are being made. And I suspect, you know, when litigation's ongoing, uh, if those become discoverable, there might be some really good uh, documents from people who are, in fact, you know, within the agency themselves making our case for us. Um, so that's certainly something I would be focused on from the litigation perspective. 
And that's something we saw in the early days uh, during the transition and in the first uh, two weeks or so was the number of uh, what we, we must assume were bureaucratic leaks uh, from within and around the White House. Uh, I, I, I was a journalist for several years, and I never recall, uh, uh, and this is when I was addicted to news, <laughs> never recall that volume of distrust from within the government uh, taking place. And it was kind of, it was both frightening and fascinating to watch happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of, it sort of demonstrates the level of concern that people have uh, about the harm that could be caused by various, you know, regulatory or deregulatory and defunding efforts. Um, and, and people who feel like they, you know, maybe can't express that, that concern within the chains of command, you know, seek to go outside it and hope that there's political, you know, public pressure. Uh, that sort of gets a job done for them that they feel like they can't get done internally, perhaps. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. And I'm not gonna, you know, I've been at a couple career panels with people who work for various regulatory agencies, and it's pretty shocking to see what they say publicly. And I think it it you know it does sort of show you how concerned they are about what's happening within their organizations that they feel, you know, in, in some instances they feel like they can't do their jobs. Well, and that's uh, one of the great signs from the March for Science that took place over the weekend was all horror movies start with a scientist being ignored. Exactly. Um, I thought that was quite appropriate. Uh, now, one thing, and this this is uh, almost a personal question for me, is I uh, obviously both as sort of a, a you know a, a nonprofit communicator and as a somewhat quasi newsy person uh, doing this podcast and blogs, uh, am plugged into a lot of channels in terms of animal related news, and. I am having trouble keeping up, in all honesty, with the news coming out of the U.S. I mean, Canada's busy enough. But we start seeing things like today there was a uh, headline about a bill that accidentally allowed uh, uh, drones to shoot at predators. Uh, there's the the uh, hibernating wolves and or bears that can be hunted now. Um, all of these these strange laws that were in place or... Uh, you know, were sort of not regulated because no one thought they needed to be, all of a sudden are coming out. Um, how how should people, and, and this is for every political stripe, stay both, you know, uh, legitimately informed, because I think that's a big issue these days, uh, is the volume of spin and uh, uh, quote-unquote fake news, um, or at the very least, I should say, reliable information dissemination. Um so staying sort of connected with all that and then knowing what to do with it, because you, you've got sort of your local, local, state, federal level groups all sort of jumping on these things with different bits of information coming from each of them. Then you've got the news industry that's sort of partially covering some of it and the legislature, which in some cases is honestly just making it up as they go along. Uh, so how can people stay informed, connected, and uh, able to respond to some of these Sweeping changes, again, from that sort of, you know, removal of data down to absolutely ridiculous laws that no one even knew were a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly difficult from the public perspective to keep abreast of all, all the developments. I mean, fortunately for me at the Animal Legal Defense Fund, we have a tremendous network. I mean, we have a very internally within our organization, we have you know, over a dozen attorneys. Many of those are focused on, you know, sort of criminal justice impacts, which is beyond my area as a litigator. We have various people focused on legislative efforts. Uh, we also have a really tremendous network of, I think, almost 2,000 pro bono attorneys at, you know, 400 law firms around the country, and and then, you know, hundreds of thousands of members who are non-lawyers as well, and that network certainly helps, you know, keep us informed. 
Uh, and certainly what we try to do is disseminate to our members sort of, you know, specific high-priority action items. So certainly one way that the public can stay inform, informed of certain, you know, critical issues is following the Animal Legal Defense Fund, you know, going to our website. We have a Twitter feed, uh, things like that. And there's other, you know, great organizations out there as well in our field that we often work, you know, work with and partner with who also, you know, track things, um, you know, and, and are another great great outlet for information but certainly you know like you said in, in it seems like in the last few months there's been a lot of activity uh, regarding regulation and deregulation and it you know it just t- it takes a lot of resources uh, to keep track of that j- just to keep track of it much less to fight it so certainly um, you know we're, we're laser focused at the animal legal defense fund on on doing everything we can to stay on top of everything and, and fight where we need to fight to protect the lives and advance the interests of animals through the legal system. Is that potentially a tactic from, and I, I don't know what label to provide because it's not fair to say Republicans, um, as clearly not all Republicans agree with what's going on, but from those who want to, at the very least, undo or reverse uh, the benefits that have been given or have earned uh, uh, for non-human animals in recent years? Is is it maybe something that they're saying, if we do it all at once, some of it's definitely going to get through? I mean, it could very well be because certain, you know, certain administrative actions, certain executive actions, you know, there's there's time limits on the ability to challenge it. But I, I feel very confident that the Animal Legal Defense Fund, you know, its organization, as well as, you know, the many other uh, great partners that we work with are, are on top of all the key issues and aren't going to let anything slip through the cracks. But certainly, you know, from the public's perspective, you know, this is a really good time. If you if you care about animals, you should be supporting groups like the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Uh, we can use all the help we can get. The other, you know, great organizations that we work with can use all the help they can get too. So if you're, you know, a member of the, of the public out there and, you know, frustrated by what's going on and trying to figure out what to do, you know, one of the easiest things to do is, you know, get connected with the Animal Legal Defense Fund, you know, the various other groups out there, stay abreast of information. We often have action alerts where you can, you know, write to your, your congressman or woman or your elected representatives and tell them, hey, I, you know, here's something that's going to happen legislatively. I don't like it. I want you to do something different. Or here's, you know, a great law that was introduced that would help animals. I want you to support that. Um, you know, that's a that's a free way to to help help out these causes. And then certainly, obviously, um, it, it costs a lot of money to litigate cases. So we're obviously always interested in, you know, people who, you know, have extra money and are looking to donate where we always welcome that, at, you know, as well. Excellent. And we've got uh, just a couple of questions from the audience that came through. Um, uh, I already sort of touched on a couple of them. Uh, one, and, and this is to me an interesting one. Uh, and, and I'll try and add emphasis where it was used with caps. Um, <laughs> have they noticed any positive changes or do they expect any with him? And by that, I presume, uh, 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 president Trump in office and what major changes have already taken place. So I think we've covered off sort of some of the major changes, but have there been any positive changes and do you expect any? Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm an optimist, uh, by nature. I'm a half glass full kind of person. So I always feel like when things go to an extreme, it tends to bounce back and sometimes it bounces back in really positive ways that you can't foresee at the time. So sometimes in, you know, sort of the darkest moments, that's what gets you to the light. Um, and, and so I do see that. I, I think uh, there's a natural reaction to, to some of the policies by even, you know, members of the administration's party. Like I mentioned, the, the big cat public safety act, I think it had, you know, and I, I don't quote me on this, but it maybe seven or eight Republican co-sponsors. You know, I don't know if you would have gotten seven or eight Republicans to support that kind of legislation 
you know, six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that there will be positives. You know, we have to fight the fight now to protect the interests of animals against any efforts to deregulate, defund, etc. cetera. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think, uh, you know, the vast majority of people want animals to be treated well. They want the environment to be clean, uh, not just for animals, but for us. And so I do think that to the extent there are efforts underway by industry groups to sort of get laws passed in, in this environment, that at the end of the day, that that will hopefully backfire and what will, what will come out of it is better laws. Um, well, and that's certainly some of the attitudes I've been reading, uh, specifically about things like the Affordable Health or the Affordable Care Act, sorry, um, how people were against it, against it, against it, then saw what the plan was and all of a sudden realized, holy crap, uh, we need something. And it, it almost, it, it was interesting to watch on social media people who said, you know, I was against this. Now that it's been put in the legislature and it's been debated and all of these things are coming up, I have a better idea of what I need and what I want. And now they're communicating. And again, you heard on a number of Republicans saying, I'm not going to support what you're putting out because it's going to affect my constituents negatively. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree with that. I mean, I think there were, you know, I, I'm personally, I'm, I'm, you know, in favor of Obamacare, but um, certainly there's improvements that could be made. Certainly there are cost issues that could be addressed. Um, there's a lot of people out there who have trouble, you know, making even the subsidized payments under the plan. So uh, that's a great example of something where maybe because there was this attempt to completely undo that law, you'll end up with something that's better and it'll be better for everyone, I hope. And I, this, this, again, this is another one, um, that is very broad, but I think is, is potentially a very good question for you and for the Animal Legal Defense Fund is, uh, do you think the general public will ever start to view animals, and then in uh, uh, parentheses, any as sentient beings, slash anytime soon? I do. I, I certainly think, I think there's already a segment of society that, and the science is there, uh, you know, with regard to like chimpanzees, it's clear they're sentient, um, you know, they're, they're they're very, very intelligent, they can learn language, they can understand, you know, pretty complicated concepts. So I do think there's already a segment of, of you know, the population that's there. And I think it grows every day. I and mean, that's really one of the things I'm excited about, you know, being part of the Animal Legal Defense Fund. If, if you look back uh, when we were founded, uh, I think it was in 1979 by Joyce Tischler, she, she founded the whole field of animal law. There, was, there wasn't such a thing uh, before the Animal Legal Defense Fund and before Joyce uh, came up with this area of law. And now it's an established part of society. Uh, and there's many, many groups that are, you know, working to advance the interests of animals. So I think, you know, over time, uh, it's just the number of people who who recognize, you know, how important animals are and that they are sentient, that they deserve to be treated, you know, not just humanely, but on some level, they, they need to have rights recognized. I think, you know, over time, that will just continue to build and build and build and the laws, you know, like they, in many areas, laws will eventually catch up and recognize that. Um, so I do, I do remain, remain hopeful and, you know, and like you mentioned, you're, you're, you, you eat a plant-based diet. So do I, I certainly didn't do that growing up. Uh, and I converted over, you know, maybe it's been 12 years now and I did it because I learned about, you know, what was going on in the animal agricultural world. Uh, and I learned about the abuses that happen to animals and there's been a lot of great advances in the plant-based alternative products out there as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that momentum will just continue and it'll be easier and easier and easier for more people to move to a plant-based diet, which helps obviously animals and the environment. Absolutely. And on that note, one question I'd like to ask, um, uh, particularly those of you in the legal field, is an oft-criticism that I receive 
um, in any kind of debate about animal welfare, rights, laws, etc., is that it's a mass animal rights agenda, uh, which obviously is, you know, ominous, um, to make everyone vegan and end all use of animals and have no one keep animals as pets. Uh, and I say this as I am stared at by multiple dogs. Um, so how like, how do you respond? Because I'm sure you get that all the time as well. I do, and that's certainly not true for me. I'm, I'm you know, and, and neither is it true for the Animal Legal Defense Fund. I mean, we don't want to force anyone to, to be a vegan. We do think that um, there are obviously huge benefits to being vegan, both for your own personal health, for the environment, for animals. Uh, but, but it, you know, even a very moderate position helps. And, and I think, you know, that's sort of what we're focused on. We're focused on very, very moderate positions. Um, you know, we, we are anti-puppy mill, for example. I mean, I, I have dogs myself. I love dogs. And most of the people that work in the Animal Legal Defense Fund uh, have, have, have pets. And we certainly wouldn't want to, you know, you know, they're a part of the household. Most of us treat them like kids. Um, so there's, you know, nobody has the agenda to try to get rid of that. Um, you know, so I, so I do think that animal, you know, what happens a lot of times in many circumstances is opponents to a group try to, uh, you know, uh, paint them as an extremist group to sort of silence their legitimate criticisms. And I think that's exactly what this is. It's an example of, you know, people painting, animal welfare groups, animal rights groups with a really broad extremist brush when it's simply just not true and has no basis in fact. Uh, and if you look at the Animal Legal Defense Fund, if you look at its, you know, its mission, its policies, its cases, they're very, very moderate. Well, and I think that's something that's very interesting um, is, and it's a very short tangent, is the, the puppy mill uh, legislation. And I recall a friend of mine shared a notice that to paraphrase said legislation in place to try and end puppy mills. And this, this was American. It might've been state New Jersey or federal. I can't recall. Um, and uh, it, it means that you won't be able to choose the breed of dog you want anymore. Cause it'll end all breeders. Cause none of the breeders can, you know, live up to these ridiculous USDA welfare standards, which I, I literally snorted out loud when I read that line. Yeah. Um, but, and this, this was a, a very intelligent woman who's involved in the dog community who shared this because it sort of aligns with her, her reasonable concerns about some in the animal rights community. Uh, cause as we all know, there are some people who are, as we've, we've already sort of said are extreme on this. Um, but it was, and I, I spent the time, I read the legislation, I read all the news, uh, it took me about an hour to go through all of it. And no, none of that is accurate. Uh, none of what you've, you've posted here is true. And this is what the legislation will actually do. Um, that seems to me to be a very common tool these days, particularly of lobbies where, uh, you know, animals may be exploited or, or at the very least are a commodity. Exactly. I mean, fear is one of the great motivators. So certainly, you know, political movements, political groups, lobbying groups are constantly using fear and scare tactics to try to convince people to, to do whatever they want them to do. And that is, that is a perfect example because I'm not aware of any, any law out there that wouldn't allow a very, very broad, uh, exemption for reputable breeders, you know, single, single breed breeders who are, you know, AKC registered or whatnot. I'm not aware of any law that stops them from doing what they're doing. Um, you know, but that said, there's, there's millions of, of stray dogs and cats that get euthanized every year because they're simply not loving homes for them when there's, you know, you know, people are out there buying puppy mill dogs who are just going to get sick and, you're going to have to spend an exorbitant amount on, on vet bills. And, you know, oftentimes it's, it's just, is an ultimate tragedy that you have 
you know, you, you, you buy this puppy and you grow to love them and they, you know, because they're raised in a puppy mill have medical issues and they don't just don't have a lot of time with you. Whereas if you, you know, went to one of the many, many shelters out there who have amazing dogs available for, for rescue, uh, and get one of those for much, much cheaper. Oftentimes, you know, you'll have a loving family member for, for a long time. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, uh, we're gonna have to just redo this whole thing about dogs now. Um, I, I tend to go on tangents when dogs come up, but yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like it's it's a failing of many of us in this community. Um, there are a lot of young people who are sort of at that verge of college, um, or who have already completed some levels of college, university, um, and want to help animals and are considering a legal path. Um, now, I I am not officially not advocating for more lawyers on in the world. <laughs> Uh, this this is the important point that we all have to agree to right now, but yeah. for those good people who are mistakenly in the 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 belief that being a lawyer is a good thing for the world, um, how would they go about getting into what you do? I mean, you, you yourself have said you went from private practice to ALDF relatively recently, um, and I you know most of the lawyers I know who are involved in animal welfare that was always kind of a goal, but it was a far out there goal. It wasn't necessarily something they were able to immediately do. So how do people go from sort of that curious stage of, you know, taking their LSATs or, or uh, SATs um, or looking at program guides to being a, uh, a true um, animal rights, animal welfare attorney? Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually one of the areas where the Animal Legal Defense Fund really excels. Uh, we have a, a nationwide, actually, I think it's in Canada as well. So it's international. Uh uh, student Animal Legal Defense Fund chapter program. And so many, many of the law schools uh, in the U.S. and I believe several in Canada uh, have these have these groups of students who have this passion for animal law. And so just the first thing you can do, the easiest thing to do is join that chapter if it happens to be at your school. Uh, and if you're not in law school yet but are thinking of going, there's a lot of resources on the Animal Legal Defense Fund's website and I'm sure if you know if you live near a law school, even if you're not a law student, you could be an honorary member of one of these groups. And you know they they do a lot of good work and educate you about you know animal law issues and and get you involved in the community. Uh, and then one of the benefits of that, if you do join a chapter of the of the Student Animal Legal Defense Fund groups, we have all these amazing clerkship programs. So you can have an opportunity to to work with us at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Um, there's there's all sorts of you know law schools that have a focus on animal law. I mean one of the really, as you know when I was mentioning Joyce Tischler founded the, the whole field of animal law you know about 30 40 years ago. Um, you know there obviously weren't law school classes on, on animal law then. Mm-hmm. Almost every law school has animal law classes now, um, and so you can you know certainly take those classes and learn about the animal law that way. Uh, there's a lot of overlap with environmental law issues, so I would encourage people to take environmental law classes as well. Um, a lot of our cases, you know, are brought under environmental statutes. Um, and that's really the best path if you're trying to get, you know, straight into the field of animal law right out of law school. Um, and then there's obviously the non-traditional path like I took. I went to a large law firm and worked there for 15 years before I finally saw the light and went, went and joined the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And what's it been like for you? And by the way, right now in my head, you are Daredevil. Uh, so I'm assuming you're blind because um, that's exactly how he, you know, transitioned. But anyway, if you haven't watched the show, you got to watch it on Netflix. No, I do. No, that's um, good. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, yeah it was, it's been great. I mean, I, I'm really happy. I 
fortunately had a you know I was a, a partner in a large law firm for for 15 years and I had a, a law firm that was very supportive of my interest in animal law so I was able to take pro bono cases for the animal legal defense fund and some other animal groups over the last 10 years or so uh, and I just been thinking about doing it full time you know for the last couple of years um, you know and and really with sort of the election result it was just the right time in my life uh, I, I made the decision to jump ship, and I'm super happy with it. And uh, we're, you know, happy to be doing a lot of good work. Excellent. And I'm going to end with uh, the most common statement when I, I put the 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 request for questions, comments, and so on uh, when uh, we settled on this interview uh, with your uh, your communications team. Uh, the number one thing people wrote back was, "Please thank them for me." Um, uh, people, I think they, it's, it's one thing to, to be an advocate and to speak for animals. Uh, it's another to take a lengthy education, um, with, with a lot of costs associated with it and a lengthy career path and focus it on the animals. So on behalf of all of those people, thank you and your team for everything you're doing for the animals. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. That's nice to hear. To learn more about Anthony or ALDF's work or get involved, visit them online at ALDF.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I hope you'll join me in rocking a new Celebrating Castor Canadensis shirt, available for a limited time, and stay tuned for new contests coming soon. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.